Well, let's, uh, to begin with, let's open in prayer. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for the revelation of who you are to us. And through that revelation, we can give you proper praise and glory and honor. We thank you, Father, that you are our great God. And we thank you, Father, that you have given to us your spirit to guide us, to teach us, to lead us, to to preserve us and protect us, to keep us safe, to keep us walking with you. We ask that your spirit would continue to watch over us and cause us to live as obedient sons and daughters. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity and the great pleasure and the great privilege of living in this time where we can see your, your word being fulfilled so perfectly and by your divine power. So as we examine your work this morning, we pray that, that you would be glorified and we would have a greater understanding, a greater appreciation and worship of your spirit. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are examining the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, yesterday I was, I was going through my notes and I realized, you know what? There's something that I would like to add to this. So there's no way we're going to finish this lesson, but we'll, we'll just go as far as we can and then we'll pick it up again next week because the work of the Holy Spirit is, uh, is an important aspect of our understanding of who the Spirit is and how the Spirit is operating within us. And to begin with, uh, I equate the work of the Spirit with divine providence. One of the least discussed and most misunderstood attributes of God is the attribute of divine providence. So, to begin with, I want to ask you, to get your input, what do you, how do you define providence? What is, what is providence? Anybody have a working definition, even if it's very simple? Yes, exactly. Providence means to provide for, okay? And so divine providence, if it's providing, then what, does it, what is the definition for providence? What is divine providence? I think the most common uh, definition I hear is that it is God's care of his creation, God's providing for his creation. But the problem is how you define providence really is, de- is determined by your theology, God's providence does not operate in a vacuum. It is defined through the lens of God's other attributes. In other words, God's providence is in his love. God's providence is according to his divine will. God's providence is sovereign. God's providence is just. God's providence is exercised in omnipotence. And is exercised with his mercy and his knowledge and his holiness. All of his other attributes go into the exercise of his divine providence. It is not, does not operate in a vacuum, but it is works in conjunction with all of his other attributes so that it is perfect and holy and just. So the problem with defining, defining divine providence is that definitions vary greatly depending upon one's view of God and one's view of man. In regard to one's view of God, you must answer the following questions to get to understand the definition. Is God sovereign in all things? Now, surprisingly, there are a lot of people who say that's, no, he's not. Is God omnipotent and omniscient? Most people would agree with that. Has God ordained all things according to his divine will? A lot of people might uh, not agree with that one. And can God's will be thwarted? Uh, There are a great many people who think God's will can be thwarted. Your answer to those questions forms the basis of your view of divine providence, but also your view of man. Consider the following questions. Is man totally depraved? Most professing Christians in the world today would say, no, man is not totally depraved. Is man able to thwart or disobey God's decretive or his secret will? There are a great many people who say that you can. So how you answer those questions really determines how you define divine providence. The answer to these questions forms your definition. Consider the following definitions, and I pulled up a couple of these off the Internet. The Wikipedia uh, definition of divine providence is God's intervention in the world. Not his ruling of the world, but his intervention. A distinction is usually made between general providence, which refers to God's continuous upholding the existence of of the natural order of the universe, and special providence, which refers to God's extraordinary intervention in the life of people. Uh, I, I really the 
The whole, the whole gist of the reason I pulled up this definition was because it, it views God's work in the world as intervention, not ruling, not reigning. The Lutheran view I thought was pretty interesting. According to J.T. Mueller, in Lutheran theology, divine providence refers to God's preservation of his creation, his cooperation with everything that happens, and his guiding of the universe. While God cooperates with both good and evil deeds, with the evil deeds, he's, he does so not only in as much as they are deeds, but not with the evil in them. The point is here, this view is sees God is cooperating with nature, not ruling, not reigning, not controlling, not, not providing for, but simply cooperating. The Roman Catholic view. The Catechism of the Catholic Church states that creation has its own goodness. Well, we know that's not right. And proper perfection. But it did not spring forth complete from the hands of the Creator. It's a work in progress. The universe was created in a state of journeying or in progress toward an ultimate perfection yet to be attained, to which God has destined it. We call divine providence the dispositions by which God guides his creation. And it goes on, and I don't really want to read too much more. But you, you, you get the, the gist of it. It is, it is more of a guiding influence, but not a controlling influence. Then you have the Arminian view of providence, the belief that God limits himself to give human beings free will to go against his perfect will. In other words, God will, God's will can be thwarted because man can overrule God. And that's the whole problem. Because if you believe that, then you believe that God is not truly sovereign in all things. And then finally, we get to the reform view, which emphasizes the total depravity of man and the complete sovereignty of God. God's plan for the world and every soul that he has created is guided by his will or providence. Note the actual use of scripture in support of this view. From Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. In other words, it is his will that is accomplished and not man's. He is in control. So you can see that the definition of divine providence really is determined by your theology. It is how high is God and how low is man. The lower you bring God, the more you exalt man, the more bizarre, I would say, is your de definition of providence because it, it, the question is, is God in control? Is he sovereign? And does he have control over all things? Based upon this small sampling of, uh, of definitions, you can see that the definition of divine providence is based upon your view of God and man. A majority of people who would profess to believe in God believe that man's relationship with God is synergistic. Matt has used this term several times. Synergistic, that man cooperates with God. That man possesses some degree of autonomy, self-direction, and free will. Based upon that view, such people see God's power and will over man as being limited. That man has the ability to thwart God's will. As such, God's providence is limited in its scope and power. God nudges his, creation, his creatures by influencing events, but he is not in absolute control of creation. And there are a great many people that God believe that God is not in absolute control. So, if it... The problem is, if you can't even agree on a definition of providence, then how can you even have a discussion? You're talking apples and oranges. On the other hand, if you believe that God's sovereign power and will are absolute, then you believe that God is monergistic. That God alone, without external influence, orders and controls every detail in creation. That God's decretive will cannot be thwarted. And that everything that happens is ordained by God. Man has no ability to act autonomously outside of God's will. That's what we believe. We have no ability to do anything that is contrary to God's will, his, his revealed will, or his, his secret will, rather. According to the review, reform view of God's providence, God ordains and orders every detail of existence and events in his creation down to the most minute detail. He controls every atom in creation. Atom, not Adam. Although he controls every atom, too. Nothing happens randomly or by, ch by chance, but only according to God's sovereign will. And here are several passages. Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Everything is in God's order. God controls everything. Not a blade of grass grows that God does not ordain. Not a single snowflake falls to the ground 
And it is unique in its creation that God did not create an order. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all, book were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 27. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? God is in control. He's already ordained everything. We live our lives under the illusion that we somehow have some degree of control. Yes, we are responsible for our decisions, but God has ordained all things. And according to his divine providence, he not only controls all things, but he controls them in such a way that they maintain perfect order in accordance with his will. So we see, my point in all this is that the work of God is according to his divine will. All that he does, all the work that he does, has been ordained from eternity past. Your lives have already been ordained for you. The exact number of breaths and heartbeats you, your body will take have already been ordained. There's nothing we can do to change that. And when we talk about the providence of God, we must understand the primary member of the triune Godhead that is active in sovereignly ordaining, ordering all things in the world today is God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is the active member of the Godhead in the world today. God the Father is seated on the throne, ruling and reigning in heaven. Yes, he is active, but he is not active in that he is accomplishing these things. God the Son is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning with the Father, and interceding on our behalf before the Father. When Satan accuses us day and night, we have an, we have an intercessor who is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding, mediator, interceding on our behalf. God the Holy Spirit is actively at work here in the world today, ordering all events in accordance with the divine will. God the Holy Spirit is the primary member of the Godhead who is operative in the world today, accomplishing God's divine will, his plan for his creation. Comments or questions regarding uh, this. Why is it important that we know and understand that, God, that the Holy Spirit is the primary member of the Godhead exercising divine providence in the world today? Why is that important? Is it important? I think it's important because how many of us truly recognize and understand that the Holy Spirit is the primary member of the, of the Godhead who is operative in our lives today? He, yes, go ahead, Jeremiah. Right, exactly right. I think, myself included, I think most people are woefully ignorant of the degree to which the Holy Spirit is in control of your life, is operative in your life. We give, we give great praise to God the Father and God the Son, but I think we are negligent in our worship of God the Holy Spirit. And we are woefully ignorant of the, of the degree to which the Holy Spirit is functioning in our life today. Jonathan and I had this conversation a couple of weeks ago. We're talking about, are we giving proper praise and glory and worship to the Holy Spirit? And the answer is no, we are, we are not, because we are, we are worshiping God in ignorance. And so the purpose of this class is that we would better understand the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that the Holy Spirit is much more active than we give him credit for. He is, he is worthy of, fully, fully worthy of our praise and honor and worship and, and all the glory that we could possibly give him. So we are woefully ignorant of his of his working in us and in the world today he is the the operative member of the godhead who is in control of things today so my purpose in this is to is to exalt the holy spirit that we would better understand and appreciate the magnitude of his work so those are the notes i added last night so now let's get into the main part of the message here arthur pink begins this section on the work of god with a very unwoke statement he says, it is a great mistake to suppose that the works of the Holy Spirit are all of one kind or that his operations preserve an equality as to degree. To insist that they are and do would be ascribing less freedom to the third person of the Godhead than is enjoyed and exercised by men. The nature and kind of his works are regulated by his own will and purpose. In other words, the Holy Spirit is under no obligation to ensure equality of opportunity 
or outcome. That's a, that's a big buzzword in our society today. We need to have, there needs to be equal opportunity, and not only that, but there needs to be an equal outcome. We all need to be the same. And there is, the Holy Spirit is under no obligation to ensure equality of opportunity or of outcome. He is sovereign over all his creation and answers to no one for why he, for why he does what he does. We have no right. We are, we are the clay. He is the potter. We have no right to demand that he explain himself why somebody gets this, but somebody doesn't get this. I mean, it, why, why do things happen? Because God has willed it. God has chosen to do it that way. And we have no right to demand an answer. We have no right to even ask the question. The Holy Spirit's work on both the unsaved and the saved. That's the, uh, the next subject here. The light that God furnishes different souls varies considerably, both in kind and degree. Many of the works of the Spirit, though perfect in kind, and fully accomplishing their design, are wrought by Him upon and within men who nevertheless are not saved. That's quite a statement. God works in the unsaved, even though they remain will remain unsaved. Charles Spurgeon makes several points regarding the Holy Spirit working in two separate ways. First of all, Spurgeon says regarding God's work in the unsaved. In some men's hearts, he works with restraining grace only. And the restraining grace, though it will not save them, is enough to keep them from breaking out into the open, into open and corrupt vices in which some men indulge who are totally left by the restraint of the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit may work in men some good desires and feelings and yet have no design of saving them. But Mark, none of these feelings are things that accomplish or accompany salvation, for if so, they would be continued. Spurgeon's point is, in his restraining grace, God prevents the unsaved from being worse than they might be. Which, if you look at the world today and you see how it's getting worse and worse, can you imagine if the Holy Spirit were not restraining them? it would break out into just total anarchy. The only reason the world is not totally corrupt and totally out of control is because the Holy Spirit is restraining the unsaved. Were it not for the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit, this world would be unlivable and we would be persecuted to death. Now, what Spurgeon says regarding the Spirit's work in the saved. Spurgeon says, but he works omnipotently to save only in the persons of his own elect whom he assuredly bringeth unto himself. I believe then that the trembling of Felix, as we see in Acts chapter 24, when he listened to Paul speak of Jesus Christ, is to be accounted for uh, by the restraining grace of the Spirit, provoking his conscience and making him tremble, but not tremble unto salvation. Felix was, was, was afraid, but he was not afraid enough to believe. The Spirit did not give him the ability to believe. But yet what he heard frightened him. Because in his, in, his, in his soul, he knew what, what Paul was saying was true. But yet, though he knew it was true, he did not believe. <clears throat> so the question here for you, what is the significance of the Spirit's restraining grace on the unsaved? Yes, Catherine. I agree. Anybody else? Yeah, it does. Exactly. Were it not for the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit, we would be persecuted to death. The world cannot kill Jesus again, but they can kill his children. They can kill his bride. And they would if they could. If if men were to break out in unrestrained depravity, we would be persecuted ruthlessly. Jonathan. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. That's a great point. I mean, that, that is probably the best explanation I've heard. Why, why people believe that man is basically good, or at least, at, at worst, neutral, morally neutral. People do good things and bad things. And the reason people do good, good things is because, well, they're, they're neutral. They have the capacity to do good things. But as you point out, the reality is the only reason anybody does anything good is because the Holy Spirit is giving them that, them, them that ability or that desire. Left to themselves, they would never do that. They would never do anything that appears to be good. So that's a great point. I appreciate that. Anybody else? Yes. Yes, he is. Exactly right. He, it's like Job. He says, you can go this far, but no further. So it, it, although there are forces of evil operative in the world today, they are not unrestrained. They can only do what God permits them to do. And so they are being used as tools of God to do to accomplish his will. He likens it what? Oh uh, yeah, when uh, when the the archangel is contending, uh, when Michael is contending with uh, with Satan, um, with the prince of Persia, right? Um, don't know. It's you know there are there are certainly battles being fought in the heavenly places, and they're being spiritual battle, battles being fought here in the earth. Yes, I think there is. I think I don't think there's necessarily uh, spiritual battles being fought between the angels here in the earth. I think it's simply God telling Satan you, and the, the fallen angels, you can do this, but no more. He's, he's simply ordaining what they can and cannot do. So, but the, the forces of evil are not unrestrained in the world. Left, left to themselves, left unrestrained, they would be like men. They would just be, there would be total chaos and anarchy and everybody would be dead. And that's, the, that's what Satan would like. Satan would like to kill everybody. He wants to take as many people to hell with him as he can. Yeah, I agree. And we have to remember, there are still people who are yet who are yet to be saved, who are currently unsaved. And they are elect, but they have not yet been regenerated. And so God is, is being very, very gracious to them in preserving them. But yeah, I agree. We should, our reaction to this in light of this truth should be, obviously, giving great thanks to God that things are not worse than they could be. And for preserving and protecting us in those times when we fear, you know, we fear that we would be threatened, recognizing that were it not for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we would all be threatened terribly. So we should be, we should be very grateful that things are not worse than they are because they would, they will be, they would be. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit has been robbed of much of his distinctive glory through Christians failing to perceive his various varied workings. That's one of the purposes for this class. The Holy Spirit has been robbed of much of his distinctive glory by us. In concluding that the operations of the Blessed Spirit are confined to God's elect, we Christians have been hindered from offering to him that praise which is his due for keeping this wicked world a fit place for us to live. Few today realize how much the children of God owe to the third person of the Trinity for holding in leash the children of the devil, and preventing them from utterly consuming Christ's church on the earth. So the question, why? Why have we Christians robbed the Spirit of much of his distinctive glory? And was this intentional? So why have we, why have we robbed the Spirit of, of his glory? Yeah. 
I, okay, I agree. We have we have robbed the spirit of his glory through our ignorance. And the reason we are ignorant is because nobody has taught us. None of the none of the Sunday school teachers or pastors that we grew up under have taught us about this. We have not read books that teach us about this. We have been ignorant because we have not learned, and we are, we have been slow to recognize. Was this intentional? This was not. Yes, Jeremiah. We are. We are very prone to forget. Right. Right. I would also say, like, why have we as Christians progressed to the point of forgetting the truth? Because we are, we are, we are intellectually people okay. who desire to be glory for ourselves. Okay. As opposed, we talk about robbing God of his glory. Men do it every day. Mm-hmm. I agree. Thank you. We as Christians have robbed the spirit of much of his glory, as Catherine said, out of ignorance. And as Chuck said, uh, more, and more toward, directed toward the unbelieving world. They, they have chosen. They have, they're trying to cast God out. They, they, are, they are trying to put God out of the world. But for the, for the church, those who desire to worship God, our failure, uh, our, our robbing of the spirit of his glory has been, for the most part, out of our ignorance. Because of our lack of knowledge, we have failed to glorify the Spirit for His work in restraining the unsaved. It is important that we understand and give thanks and worship to the Holy Spirit for His restraining grace. Were it not for the restraint of the Holy Spirit, our lives would be in much greater jeopardy than they already are. That is what will happen in the tribulation when the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit is removed. The people of God will be relentlessly pursued and persecuted. Now, regarding the Spirit's operation in the non-elect, Arthur Pink refers to the operation of the Spirit in the non-elect as being general and inferior, while referring to the operation of the Spirit in the elect as being special and superior. Now, regarding the general and inferior operations of the Spirit in the non-elect, Arthur Pink points to four specific operations of the Spirit. The first is restraining evil. If God should leave men absolutely to their own natural corruptions and to, the, and to the power of Satan, as they fully deserve to be, as he will in hell and as he would now, but for the sake of his elect, all show of goodness and morality would be entirely banished from the earth. 
You can imagine if the Holy Spirit were, were removed and man were allowed to exercise his depravity to the utmost, all goodness and morality would be entirely banished from the earth. That's a pretty scary thought. Men would, would grow past feeling in sin and wickedness would swiftly and entirely swallow up the whole world. The world hates the people of God. Why then does, does it not devour them? Why is it that it why is it that holds back the enmity of the wicked against the righteous? Nothing but the restraining power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit watches over us and protects us. Were it not for his restraining uh, of sin, we would we would not live long. We would be persecuted ruthlessly and relentlessly. The second reason the Holy Spirit incites to good actions. Whatever morality and honesty, unselfishness and kindness, submission to powers that be and respect for law and order, which is still found in the world, must be traced back to the gracious operation of the Spirit. Pink cites the example of the Holy Spirit restraining King Saul from killing David and how the Jews found favor in the eyes of the Egyptians who had previously bitterly hated them when they prepared to flee Egypt. Again, why did, why did the Egyptians give the Jews all their gold and all this clothing and all this stuff before they left Egypt? It wasn't because of the goodness of their heart. It was because the Holy Spirit moved them to do that. Without the moving of the Holy Spirit in them, they would have not have done anything. They would have persecuted them. But here, they're, they're giving them everything. Here, be on your way. Take all, take all my stuff with you. Third is the conviction of sin. Few seem to understand that conscience in the natural man is inoperative unless stirred by the Spirit. As a fallen creature, thoroughly in love with sin, man resists and disputes any conviction of sin. Being flesh, fallen man is perverse against the convictions of the Spirit and remains so forever unless quickened and made spirit. So it is the Spirit who convicts people of sin. It is the Spirit who causes the conscience in men to operate. Without the work of the Spirit, the conscience would be inoperable. So it is the Spirit who causes unbelievers, their, their conscience to be pricked. It causes, causes them to restrain themselves because of their conscience. And finally, the Spirit is involved, operative in illuminating. This one is particularly frightening because of the self-delusion that accompanies knowledge of spiritual things. Concerning divine things, fallen man is not only devoid of light, but is darkness itself. He has no more apprehension of spiritual things than the beasts of the field. This is very evident from, uh, from the state of the heathen. How then shall we explain the intelligence that is found in thousands in Christendom who yet have no evidence that they are new creatures in Christ? They have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. There are a great many people who are unbelievers who have a great amount of biblical and theological knowledge. How have they acquired that? Well, the Holy Spirit has given them this knowledge, given them the ability to learn and understand these things. There are some great theologians who are unsaved. So while, while illuminating them, have not saved them. Many are, const are constrained to inquire into those scriptural subjects that make no demand on the conscience in life, yea, yet many take great delight in them. Just as the multitudes took pleasure in beholding the miracles of Christ, who could, uh, who could not endure his searching demands, so the light of, of the Spirit is pleasant to many to whom his convictions are grievous. And, the, and when Jesus was speaking to the crowds, he would feed them, he would perform all these miracles, and yet they would go away in unbelief. Once the show was over, they, they departed. So to review, there are four specific general and inferior operations of the Spirit and the non-elect. Arthur Pink said the, the Spirit restrains evil, he incites the unsaved to good actions. He convicts them of sin, and he illuminates them with the truth, although that truth does not save them. That's, that's what the Spirit is doing in unbelievers. Now, regarding the Spirit's operation in the elect, it should make it easier for the Christian reader to perceive the absoluteness of this necessity when we say that the whole world of the Spirit within the elect is to plant in the heart a hatred for and a loathing of sin as sin, and a love for and longing after, the whole, after holiness as holiness. There is something that no human power can bring about. It is something that the most faithful preaching as such cannot produce. 
It is something that the mere circulating and reading of Scripture does not impart. It is a miracle of grace, a divine wonder, which none but God can and does perform. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to believe. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us the desire to love His Word. It is, you Psalm 119, David talks about thy commandments. Psalm 119 is the, the psalmist pouring out his heart. His, his love for God and for His law and for His Word, that is... That is a love for God and a love for His Word and His commandments and everything that only the Spirit can impart to us. If men are only partly depraved, if deep down in their hearts all men really love God, if they are so good-natured as to be easily persuaded to become Christians, then there is no need for the Holy Spirit. There is no no need for the Holy Spirit to put forth His almighty power and do for them what they altogether are altogether incapable of doing for themselves. And again, if being saved consists merely in believing, believing I am a lost sinner and on my way to hell, and by simply believing that God loves me and that Christ died for, for me and that He will save me now on the one condition that I accept Him as my personal Savior and rest upon His finished work, then no supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit is required to induce and enable me to, fu- to fulfill that condition. Self-interest move me, and a decision of my will is all that is required. Pink's point is that the only reason we are saved is because of the supernatural operation of the Spirit in us. There is nothing in us that causes us to believe the gospel message. There is nothing in us, naturally, that causes us to exercise faith. Everything that we have, everything that causes us to be Christians, to be true believers, is caused to happen in us by the Spirit. The Spirit gives us these things. He is the one who gives us life. We have no ability in ourselves. Comments on that? But there, again, there are a great many people who would disagree vehemently with that. The Arminians would say, no, I have the ability to choose to be saved. That's the problem. Does the Spirit, is the, is the Spirit the sole operator? Is He solely responsible for regeneration? The answer is yes. Jonathan. The problem with, with people who are persuaded to ask Jesus into their heart and to say, hey, I want to be saved, the problem is that they are, they are being persuaded by, by you know, smooth words. Somebody makes a great presentation. So, yeah, I want that. I want to go to heaven. I want, I want Jesus in my life. I want my life to be good. I mean, they make them all these promises of what's going to happen with, if, they, if they believe. And they say, well, yeah, I, I'd like that. So they, they then begin in their own power, in their own strength, to, to walk down that road and begin to learn. And ultimately, they, they will turn away because they don't have the power to, to continue. They, they have no ability to give themselves faith. So the, any faith that they profess, profess to have or demonstrate is the only faith that is exerted through their own desire. Eventually, that wears out. You know, the parable of the soils. If two of the three seeds grow up, two of which, for all, all purposes, begin to look like they're, they're true, only to eventually die off because there was, no, there was no root. But that's kind of the way, that's the way it is with men. There are a great many people sitting in churches this morning who are falling into that same, same category. They were persuaded by somebody's presentation of the gospel or, or I would say perversion of the, the gospel that, hey, I want to be a part of that. But the question is, did they hear the entire gospel? Or do they just hear the parts that people wanted them to hear? That sounds very pleasant. You know, the idea of persecution, uh, denying yourself, uh, denying sin, well, that, I don't like that part. But the idea that I can go to heaven, yeah, I like that part. I want, I want that. I want to sign up. But if, on the other hand, all men hate God and have minds that are enmity against him so that there is none that seeks after God, 
preferring and determining to follow their own inclinations and pleasures, if instead of being disposed unto that which is good, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. And if when the overtures of God's mercy are made known to them, and they are freely invited to avail themselves of the same, they all with one consent begin to make excuse. Then it is very evident that the invincible power and transforming operation of the Spirit are indispensably required if the heart of a sinner is to be thoroughly changed. And that's the point. Eventually, if you're doing it in your own strength, eventually you're going to fall away. But if you are, if you are exercising faith through the power of the Spirit, then you will not fall away because the Spirit is all-powerful. He has the ability to preserve you, to keep you. But we have no ability to preserve or keep ourselves. Again, if the Lord Jesus Christ came here to uphold and enforce the high claims of God rather than to lower or set them aside, then it is clear beyond dispute that none but the, the, the Spirit of God can impart a genuine desire for such a salvation. And instead of accepting Christ and rest, resting upon His finished work, As the sole condition of salvation, the Holy Spirit demands that the sinner throw down the weapons of his defiance, abandon every idol, unreservedly surrender surrender himself in his life, and receive him as his only Lord and Master. Then nothing but a miracle of grace can enable any captive of Satan to meet such requirements. That's a great statement by Pink, that only the Spirit has the ability for us to deny ourselves and believe. So, what are the main points of Arthur Pink's argument regarding the total depravity apart from the Spirit? If man is not totally depraved, if man is either morally neutral or inherently good, then men can save themselves, and there is no need for the Holy Spirit in salvation. Second, if being saved is based upon merely agreeing that you are a sinner and that you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, then there is no need for the Spirit's supernatural operation to induce and enable you to believe. And third, the view that man is morally neutral or inherently good is found nowhere in Scripture. That's the problem. It sounds good, but it's not biblical. And it is actually contrary to the teaching of Scripture. Scripture declares that man is born depraved and is unable to reconcile himself to God without the operation of the Holy Spirit. So those who would deny the Spirit, deny the supernatural work of the Spirit, cannot be saved. Now, there are objections to total depravity. In opposition to his argument affirming that the total depravity of man, Arthur Pink presents several objections posited by those who disagree with him and then presents his response to each objection. The first objection, this is the objector speaking. There is in every human heart, there is in every human heart a desire for deliverance from misery and a longing after happiness and security. And those who come under the sound, the sound of God's word are naturally disposed to be delivered from the wrath to come. If you present them with the truth in, in, a, in a very clear way, they will, of course they will want to believe. Of course they will want to be saved. That's the objector's point. Is that All you have to do is get out there and preach the gospel, and those who hear will naturally say, this is a very good message, I want to believe it. To which Pink says, but that desire and disposition is quite compatible and consistent with the greatest love to sin and most entire operation, uh, opposition of heart to that holiness without which no man can see the Lord. What the objector here refers to is a vastly different thing from di- desiring heaven upon God's terms and being willing to tread the, the only path that leads there. In other words, simply wanting to be spared the wrath to come is not the basis of true faith. That cannot save you. Simply saying, I hear the message and it sounds very pleasing, I would like that, is not the basis of faith. The second objection. The instinct of self-preservation is sufficiently strong to move multitudes to undertake many performances and penances in hope that thereby they can escape hell. Nobody wants to go to hell. And when you teach them about hell, if their conscience truly believes that there is a hell, their, their first reaction is, I don't want to go. They want to avoid going to hell as much as possible. So the instinct of self-preservation is sufficient for them to believe. That's the objection. To which then Pink replies, the stronger men's belief in the truth of divine revelation, the more firmly they become convinced that there is a day of judgment, 
when they must appear before their maker and render an account of all their desires, thoughts, words, and deeds, the most serious and sober will be their minds. Let conscience convict them of their misspent lives, and they are ready to turn over a new leaf. Let them be persuaded that, God, that Christ stands ready to be, as a fire escape and is willing to rescue them, though the world still claims their hearts, and thousands are ready to believe in them. Yes, this is done by multitudes who still hate the true character of the Savior and reject with all their hearts the salvation that he has. Far, far different is this from a regenerate person longing for deliverance from sin, self and sin and the impartation of that holiness which Christ, Christ purchased for his people. In other words, a desire to avoid going to hell is not the basis upon which you are saved. People are not saved because they are fearful of judgment. People are saved, and the evidence of that salvation is because they love, they love Christ and they truly hate their sin. They see their sin as God sees their sin, that it is an abomination, it is disobedience. They hate their sin with a hatred that, that is truly supernatural. The Spirit gives them the ability to hate their sin. At the same time, He gives them the ability to love Christ. That is the gift of the Spirit. For the unbeliever, the unbeliever is simply motivated by fear. They simply do not want to suffer judgment. And they, will, they want to do whatever they need to do to avoid judgment. But that is not the basis of faith. That's, people are not saved out of fear. They are saved out of love for, for God and hatred of, them, of themselves and their own sin. Yes, Catherine. I mean, I, all the all the books, forty days of purpose, and all, all these all these self help books out there, they all try to to give you a, give you a game plan that you can work your way to heaven. It's interesting, and, and Matt and I are perfectly in agreement with this. That I we have always avoided any kind of altar call, because I have always viewed the altar call as a manipulation. You know, you you preach a very strong, powerful message, and and people's conscience, unbelievers' consciences, are truly pricked. They are, they are going, oh my gosh, what, you know, that's, this is terrible. And then you, you sing some songs and you, you offer up some, some motivation to come, up, come forward and be saved and be baptized. And of course, they, they're, they're, their conscience being, being rocked, they want to be rescued. They want to be saved. But there's no salvation there. There's fear and there may be a, a, a conviction of sin. But I think altar calls, for the most part, are, are very manipulative. Yes, they are. They are an emotional response and they're a manipulation because it makes the pastor feel good. Oh, people responded to my message this morning and he came up and got saved. Wait a minute. He got saved two weeks ago. You know, I mean, why is it always the same people who keep coming forward? Well, they're, they're moved, but it's like, obviously, if you're moved, you keep coming up, then nothing is changing in you. Matt.
it's it's terrifyingly sad because those people have just have just been persuaded that they're now saved. They've been patted on the head and said, "Congratulations, you're in the kingdom. Go out and live the rest of your life." And and that it's horrible because that's a, it's a terrible deception perpetrated on them. As a matter of fact, I and I've I've always I've said this before. Satan's greatest lie, Satan's greatest deception is persuading unbelievers that they're saved. And people who who hold to this altar call system are are participating in that lie. It is. Exactly right. Right. Which which is my question. One of one of the questions I have here. If a if a person claims to be a Christian and, and has not heard the gospel, truly heard all of the gospel, is that person saved? If that person if a person has not been taught about repentance about all the, the, what the gospel message is, and yet they profess faith, is that person even truly believer? Well, we obviously we don't know. But they're certainly in danger. If you're given incomplete knowledge, and I believe, I, I'm given a portion of the gospel message here. Jesus loves me and has this wonderful plan for my life. Uh, and Okay, I believe that. And, and so I'm a Christian based upon that. And, and do I know enough to be saved? He can. Yeah, the, the Spirit can work with anything. I've, I've got a friend who was saved in a New Age church. You know, he heard something that he, one kernel of truth the Spirit was able to work with. You have to be careful. Matt, did you have something you want to add?
Some people still are. <laughs> That's the problem. Right. 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 Yeah, that's that's the problem. I mean, it because salvation is a supernatural work of the spirit. It's man wants to man wants to think that if I have a smooth enough presenta- presentation, if I'm eloquent enough in my in my speech, then I can persuade someone to be saved. Then I don't need the spirit. I don't need the spirit. I got this. Anyway, my presentation, Charles Finney. My presentation is so polished that I can I can convince anybody to believe anything. You know, the old the old adage: I can sell ice to Eskimos. You know, I can I can do it. I don't need the spirit. But that's the problem. In so doing, you are you are robbing. You are robbing God of his glory. God said, I will not share my glory with another. He said, we are simply tools that, that God has chosen to use to spread the gospel message. But there is no power inherent in ourselves or even in the message apart from the Spirit. But Exactly right. 
Jonathan. That's a great point. It's a, if, if your presentation of the gospel to someone doesn't elicit the response that you were hoping for, you have to recognize it's not a failure on your, on your part. It's not a poor presentation. It's simply the spirit was not working yet. Maybe not no, maybe just not yet. But the fact is, success or failure is not dependent upon you. It is simply the spirit, the supernatural work of the spirit, deciding whether that person will hear and believe. It's, you know, it's been said the average, Matt came up with a statistic, the average Christian, professing Christian, has statistically has heard the gospel seven times before they believe. It's like, what happened the first six times? And, and that's average. And there are some people who have probably heard many, many, many times over a period of years, and then the Spirit will open their eyes and give them understanding. It's not because that one person finally said it, everything in the right order and said it perfectly. It was simply the Spirit choosing to work at the particular time he did. It's not up to you. That's right. Man, he's going to answer for that. Yeah, he's going to answer for that. Right. We'll tell you what, we're, <clears throat> we're out of time, so let's close in prayer. But thank you all for participating this morning. Hope you were encouraged by it. But let's give uh, let's give thanks, <clears throat> Father. We thank you 
We thank you that you have given to us your spirit. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have you have worked in our lives. You have changed us. You have supernaturally changed us so that we are now no longer the people we once were, but you have given us a, a holy hatred of sin. You have given us a desire to be obedient sons and daughters. We, we recognize that you are changing us. You are working in our lives, and we are thankful for the gift that you have given to us of faith. We pray that our, our message, our, our, our class this morning has been pleasing to you. We pray that you have been glorified through it, and we pray that we have learned these things that, are, that they are truthful. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.